0: This week's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Thanks to them for supporting the edition podcast. Welcome to the edition podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Henry. We've got a difficult... um, Show this week, just to say, we will be discussing some pretty uncomfortable subjects around sexual assault and domestic violence. So, I just want to give that warning up front because this week I'm joined by the Athletics brilliant reporter, Adam Crafton, and he is the story, it is the journalist who unpicked so much of what happened with the Mason Greenwood story at Manchester United. And how the club tried to reintegrate him into the squad after the allegations against him, Uh, he he didn't go to court. So we'll unpick that. So first of all, hello, Adam. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I would say it's a pleasure, but it's going to be a perhaps not that comfortable conversation. But I'm very pleased to have you here because you're reporting on this with Stella. And that's really what I want to focus on. Obviously, you and I could chat about football for hours, but we won't do that on this show. We'll do that once the mics go off. Um, so let's start right, right, right at the beginning. And that is with that awful audio and images we heard. It was back in March, wasn't it? 2022?
1: uh it was january twenty twenty two um january a, a, a i suppose image uh images and audio emerged on social media um in which there were images of a of a woman who appeared to have suffered injuries and also a man using very menacing threatening language yeah. um now following the release of 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 that audio and images online um Mason Greenwood uh, the Manchester well the Manchester United footballer uh, was arrested um by police um it led to charges um of well mul- multiple things i think there was attempted rape coercive control and behavior um actual
0: bodily harm
1: actual bodily harm so several charges um expectation of a trial that would have taken place this year um and then Earlier in 2023, I think February 2023, um, the Crown Prosecution Service in the in in Britain announced that the uh, that the they didn't they no longer felt there was a realistic prospect of conviction, and they cited the withdrawal of key witnesses um, as well as new material that had come to light.
0: Uh, yes. So all this meant that uh the charges as you say against mason greenwood well they sort of evaporated didn't they they because th- they, they were gone he wasn't he never f- went through the criminal process because the charges disappeared basically yeah uh, so so
1: so in essence you yeah, know he was not cleared that would be you know the wrong word to use but no case proceeded and therefore yes in the eyes of the law he 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 was innocent
0: He's he has never been found guilty of yeah. anything because no, no, no criminal, the criminal proceedings didn't happen. There was no uh there was no court trial. Yeah. So here we are. And let's just give a little bit more background. Mason Greenwood is a prodigious young talent at one of the biggest football clubs in the world, had even broken into the England football senior football team, men's team. Um, this was not a kind of young fringe player, this is a very high profile player, up and coming player at a very, very high profile. Club, um, and of course, what once these charges would would drop, once the CPS felt they couldn't continue the prosecution, it left Manchester United with the decision of what they were going to do with this young player who's been at the club since he was what seven. So they basically were put in this sort of difficult legal and PR problem, which is where your reporting comes in, and we're going to come to that in a minute, because. What I also want to point out is there was a similar, not a similar case, actually, but a similar issue arose a few years ago with a footballer called Ched Evans, who was playing for Sheffield United at the time and did actually uh, spend time in prison after a very unpleasant incident. I can't remember if it was, I think it was sexual assault were the charges he ended up in prison on. And he then left prison and various football clubs were left with the decision, did they want this player to play for them? And at the time I wrote an article, I appeared on Women's Hour saying, "Actually, he's done. His, he's done his time. Uh, we, you know, we live in a society where people get second chances. The trial was revolting. I might not want to hang out with him, but he is entitled to re-employment in the field of football if someone wants to employ him." As it happened, actually, that Ched Evans actually went through a retrial, didn't he? And the, I think was found cleared in the end. But that wasn't relevant at the time. So we've had this issue before. But for me, what felt different about the Mason Greenwood case is it didn't feel like justice had been served. We heard these awful tapes, we saw these awful images, but there was no judicial process ultimately, whether and that would apply whether he was found innocent or guilty at the end of it. It felt like the process had not been completed. And I think that added to the pressure, the PR pressure Manchester United were under. Yeah, and,
1: yeah. I, I suppose what I would say, I mean, first of all, something we've not said yet, which we should say, is you know, Mason Greenwood has always denied
0: yes, yeah, like the, ch- the, the,
1: the charges that, that were faced against him and, and and all the allegations. Um, I think you're right in the sense there was this sense of incompleteness around around the case, um, but that you know that that happens a lot in life right that's a sad reality of of the way the judicial system works sometimes you get
0: unfortunately particularly in cases of sexual assault and rape if you look at the convictions rate of those in the UK it's appalling
1: yeah and and I think that was one of the issues but I think the far bigger issue was that the public had been exposed to things that they had seen and heard and they didn't have many people did not feel they had an adequate explanation for what they had seen and heard um and i think that that meant and i think manchester united knew that because in many cases where there's legal proceedings you would just take the outcome of the of the criminal proceedings right so yes. charge charges have been dropped okay he's a free man he get back to doing what you do but clearly there was an unease and anxiety around manchester united that made them think the audio and images are so disturbing that we need to find out more about the circumstances that surrounded that. And that is why in February this year, the club announced its own inquiry, its own inquiry, um, which uh, they formed an executive panel. So that was uh, the club's kind of uh, legal counsel, Patrick Stewart, the COO, uh Colette Roach the chief comms and marketing officer um Ellie Norman uh there was also the football director John murter uh, and they would then all feed in to findings that and then this the chief executive Richard Arnold would make the ultimate decision um you would presume with some oversight from the owners the Glazer family um who, as who well weren't
0: Manchester United yeah
1: yeah so, so, that was the way United felt that they had to go about it, and presumably that was because of a consciousness around the public maybe had made their mind up in 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 many ways.
0: Yes, I've heard you on other podcasts talk about the you know the difference between the Court of Law and the Court of public opinion, and I think that that is a very important part of this story and a very important part of your reporting. Because let's get to that. Let's reiterate again, Mason Greenwood did deny all the charges against him, refuted them all. uh, And that's very important to remember as we have this conversation. So here we are. We're now in February, where uh, Manchester United are trying to unpick what to do with this young player um, and what's going to happen next. And then you get hold of a plan, basically. You see the plan of how they want to reintegrate him and you Adam Crafton really put the cat amongst the pigeons by doing that because it showed sort of a plan to reintegrate him which lots of fans and didn't like it was talking about getting involved in key stakeholders because advertising is a key part of this story it's one of the reasons I want to talk about it because you know the advertising industry is a key part of the media ecosystem of course And there was a couple of other controversial issues. I think one of the most notable ones is that they wanted to talk to the women's team at Manchester United and, you know, get their views. It obviously wouldn't be the ultimate decision of the women's team, although there was a leak, which is another media element of this, that sort of suggested it would. And that happened during the World Cup in Australia. And you had high-profile women's players, including the Manchester United women's captain, Katie Zellum, uh, Mary Earps, England goalkeeper, who were suddenly facing a lot of online pressure from people harassing them, basically, to say, let Mason Greenwood back. So all that is going on. And this is all in no small part because of your reporting. You'd really got into this. So let's talk about that. Obviously, you're not going to give up your sources on this show as much as I would like you to. But explain that process of reporting out this reintegration plan
1: yeah so i suppose if we just i suppose because there's a huge amount to unpack uh over, over what over what you just explained so if we go to um i suppose it was the middle of august pretty much when we started reporting this um and that was based on uh very very concrete uh information that i had that richard arnold the chief executive of manchester united had held a meeting with his executive leadership team um, on the 1st of August in which he had told them essentially that the club was planning to bring back Mason Greenwood that you know they'd done this investigation and they were now deciding uh, to bring him back and they'd worked on a very very extensive plan now there had been other plans earlier earlier on before August there was a plan around should we loan him out for a year there was a plan around do we just sort of settle up you know do we just get rid of him etc etc um but by the 1st of August Richard Arnold told his executive team this is what we're you know this is essentially what we're planning to do a decision is not a decision until it's executed right like so people can change their minds so United will always say you know we were considering all options etc but as of the 1st of August United were working on a plan to bring him back. And that plan was was basically leading up to an announcement on August the 4th, um, which would have been at two o'clock in the afternoon on August the 4th. Um, and the plan was in the, in the couple of days in between the, that meeting on the 1st and the scheduled announcement on the 4th. And this is all like two weeks before the start of the Premier League season. Um, Manchester United had the intention of basically consulting not consulting, briefing, I would say, key stakeholders. So those stakeholders might be the club's fans advisory board. It might also be the club's sponsors. It might also be the club's women's team. And this is where this became a really interesting thing, because what happened was the announcement didn't take place on the 4th of August in the end. It was pushed back. And the, the, the one of the reasons it was largely pushed back was because the club realised, essentially, the Women's World Cup was going on. And therefore, their plans to pre-brief the women's team were made very complicated because you had some of the strongest voices and leaders within that women's team out in Australia at the World Cup. This then, United had also told... Reporters who were out in Australia, who were out in the USA on tour with the team in pre-season to expect an announcement before the start of the Premier League season, one way or another on Mason Greenwood's future, and this is where it's like quite an interesting comms thing because it created a vacuum. Yep. There was an expectation of an announcement, and now all of a sudden there was a vacuum, and- which is
0: when always when journalists try to dig into it. If you leave that gap, that's the always the space that journalists try and fill.
1: Yeah, if there is some sort of guide that expects an announcement by this date and then it doesn't come, you're thinking well, it's either gone wrong or they've changed their minds or something's caused a delay. Yeah. And the Guardian did an initial story saying it had been delayed to consult the women's team. now there's been a lot of quest- questions around this because the f- the fact the Guardian did that article which was essentially correct in in the sense of it was, so the delay was was essentially largely due to a desire from the club to make sure they could speak to their women's team before making an announcement. However, United, I think, would query the use of the word consult, consult rather yeah. than maybe engagement or brief. or. But you're really getting into it's semantics. A bit poda- or, yeah,
0: it's a bit pedantic. Yeah, you know, you're, you're
1: getting into semantics. And at different points over you know the six Although have...
0: in the Go. context of these stories yeah. language and the you know using specific words doesn't matter when you're reporting out reporting out these kind of stories
1: 100% but what i would also say is that in the kind of the six months or so leading up to this at different points i'd heard united executives use different words whether it's engage or consult or it was all a bit interchangeable so i can understand i, tot- I can totally understand both how it was reported by the Guardian, but I also understand why, after what happened next, United maybe took issue with that. Now, what happened next was be- was following the story saying there was going to be this delay to consult with the women's team, it led to a load of kind of mad supporters on the internet who were very, very supportive of Mason Greenwood. Um, I'm not saying that's the reason necessarily they were mad. I'm saying the they started to target um, Manchester United's women's players online. Um, and that led to abuse. It led to threatening messages. We reported that at least one agent of a Manchester United women's player discussed sort of hiring a cybersecurity expert in order mm-hmm. to, to, to really track what was going on here because of the how hostile some of the messages had become. It was really deeply unpleasant. And this was all just before... England were going to play in, the, I think, the quarterfinal of the World mm-hmm. Cup. Incredibly poor timing. And there was a feeling that, you know, I think the public felt that the club had in some way contributed to that because this story around a delay and attributing it to wanting speech to the women's team had come out. Now, it could have just sort of stayed there, right? And then what happened is we got the tip around Richard Arnold had told his team And we then reported that on, I think it was August 15th, 16th. So that was the first day of reporting. And that also included details like Arnold had also planned to record a video explaining the reasons for bringing him back. And it also included details like for the first year, he wouldn't do stuff with Manchester United's foundation. So it opened questions into, well, if he's okay to be on the pitch to represent you, well, why shouldn't he also be involved in charitable activities?
0: So let's dig it again. Come bring it back to the your reporting process. And I'm grateful for you to give me all yeah. the background to the story. But obviously, in terms of a media show, we you know we want to get into the, the reporting process. So as this is going on, how are you sort of verifying what's true or not? That I have no doubt you're getting different briefings from different people from different camps. Um, how are you sort of deciphering this? and in such a sensitive story. For example, uh, the the person who is heard in those tapes, the woman who is heard in the original tapes has anonymity for life under British law. Um, People who make sexual assault allegations, you are granted anonymity for life. So, uh, which is one of the reasons we've never said on this show who it might be or anything like it doesn't, and it's not in any of your reporting. Mm -hmm. So how are you navigating all these different issues including, you know, having to protect and keep the anonymity of the woman we hear on the tape. Who is, how are you um, unpacking the different briefings you're getting from very powerful bodies and institutions? How is that all balancing out?
1: Um, I think what what made it a lot easier is I always viewed this as a story about Manchester United rather than a story about necessarily... um, the the complainant if that makes sense i viewed this as a a story around i'm not of course the complainant was absolutely central in terms of you know our sensitivities and making sure that anonymity was protected but fundamentally this was a story about a major institution's handling of an incredibly sensitive case with a huge public interest and therefore you know the story that we reported was around a plan that was organized by by the football club Um, and the planning that had gone into to bring him back so that's why you know we never sort of in 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 my reporting at least we i never sort of really made reference to you know whether mason greenwood is a good person or a bad person or or anything like that right it was always around this is what the club's planning to do these are the facts as we know them and then the public would resp- would respond to that you know as and when like of course you know was i very very conscious that there would be a huge public reaction to this of course right like you know i'm not you know, not naive here mm-hmm. and you know we're also in in the business of news right and this was this was clearly a hugely significant story and we from a sourcing point of view we had to be completely certain you know as certain as you can be within you know within reasonable doubt mm-hmm. that that we were right here because if you're a story you if you're going to be wrong on a story like this then it will bite you for a long long time Well, come. it has
0: serious legal implications
1: well it has serious legal implications but also you know manchester united would have denied it yeah. right right like, fundamentally so i don't think it would have ever got that far what was an interesting thing i suppose was that we didn't do it all on one day
0: no
1: Right, we did the first day um, of reporting where we revealed the details around uh, what Richard Arnold had told his team around the intentions bringing back, and a couple more details. And then two days later, when further information uh, had come to light, you know, it wasn't a. So sometimes I know this happens in other Nugget organisations because I've been kind of involved with that in the past where you you sometimes intentionally hold stuff so that you have day one day two day three day four you know to 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 really go after people it wasn't like that it was it was it was about getting what we knew to be right and accurate out at a certain time and uh, and also you know also about protecting sources as well so I, it may have looked like that i don't think that was ever really like it wasn't like a plan at the start um so to explain the second day of report, i tell you what let
0: we'll yeah. come on to the second day because yeah. it that was really a very I was uh, game changing moment yeah. and i want to also talk about how the athletic your publication supported you going mm-hmm. through all this uh, but first of all i want to thank our sponsors for today hello fresh with hello fresh you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. When it comes to options, honestly, more is more. That's why HelloFresh's menu includes 40 recipes and over 100 add-on items to choose from every week. I've used HelloFresh in the past and I'm delighted to have them back supporting the show. I always really appreciated the variety of meals on offer and the high quality of the produce. Go to hellofresh.com 50 edition and use code 50 edition for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Go to hellofresh.com slash 50 edition and use code 50 edition for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. Thanks to them for supporting this show. I'm with Adam Crafton of The Athletic discussing his really explosive reporting on the Mason Greenwood situation at Manchester United. So you've released your first story, yeah. uh, and you're saying that you didn't have this kind of. We often see it with political stories, don't we? You get yeah. day one, you get the denial. Normally, the ta- and it's normally a tabloid. They have, but they know the denial. You're going to get the denial. It's going to be wrong. You're going to produce on day two or three the evidence showing the denial is wrong, which is always much more damning. Mm. You're saying you didn't have a plan that was like that.
1: No, it wasn't like some Machiavellian plan to sort of do like you know day one, day two, day three, day four. It was just kind of how things played out.
0: And so you're, but you are on day two now. So explain how that proceeded
1: yeah well i suppose the, the what happened in between was we we had approached manchester united for comment uh this just to go sure. on on day one at around 9am and we'd given them i think a deadline of a i think we gave them around six hours or so um
0: not unreasonable
1: to, to come back which was pretty i think by kind of sunday newspaper standard that's pretty pretty generous um in just kind of british media terms um, and clearly it, it, it also brought into, you know, just the significance of the story, right? You know, we wanted to be complete, as, as fair as we could, uh, but more importantly, as accurate as we could as well. And what happened was Manchester United sort of asked for delay uh, a bit of an extension, which we granted them. And then that extension sort of went over again. And
0: As a certain point as reporters, you have to put your foot down and say, we're going to publish this story. If you then send us a further comment, you know, yeah, you, yeah, yeah you,
1: yeah you do but i gave and this may have been naive of me i gave the club the benefit of the doubt actually in that instance partly because i've got you know a decent relationship with people right. with certain people at the club and therefore i i was quite comfortable sort of extending that deadline and i didn't necessarily expect what happened next to hap to happen so ordinarily just in case any listeners don't know what the way it happens is you approach a publication for response and the uh, so you approach an organization for response as a publication, and the organization usually responds to you directly, um, and then you insert whatever they comment or maybe give you on background or off the record or whatever into the into the article. And the idea there is you know you've been fair by giving them the opportunity to make sure that you're being accurate and balanced and fair, and then also you retain, I suppose that exclusivity around around a story to put it in pretty crude terms about, you know, serious issue. Uh,
0: uh, and it tends to give you a better story. You want to give both sides or multiple sides. It's,
1: it's making sure we're accurate, you know, first and foremost. And what Manchester United did, which was very unusual in these circumstances, was they simultaneously sent their response to us, but also the entire media, and also released an email to all club staff, um, and put a statement on their website which was a very very long statement mm. which didn't really answer any of it but what it this this statement was put out at like 3:44 in the afternoon and it very much you know it was one of those things where as a publication at the time you're thinking oh that's a bit annoying but what it also very much made us realize is okay we're seriously onto something here yeah. because major organisations like Manchester United don't issue statements at 344 right like it just doesn't like you just don't do that right it was clearly a kind of quite cobbled together statement and I think it was illustrative of the panic that United had started to feel around that they would had this very carefully choreographed plan to try and bring Greenwood back and now all of a sudden with the story about the women's players being abused and now also the story around Richard Arnold having told his executive team there was this sense they were losing control of the narrative and i think this was an attempt to bring it back but all it really served to do i think was to actually give more gravitas to the story and make far more of a public discussion around the story and that's where you started to see criticism of united grow and grow which led us into day two
0: yeah, we should say that this actually this whole thing ended with protests outside Manchester United's first game of the season against Wolverhampton Wanderers fans protesting against this idea he'd come back. And just to cut said, it has also ended uh, with Mason Boomer we being loaned out to a Spanish team, Getafe. He's not playing for Manchester United this season, although he is technically still a Manchester United player. Hmm. Um, so you've got this: we've got Manchester United uh, releasing a statement, and you. Did it have sort of, as it goes on, if anyone looks at your uh, author bylines on The Athletic, you can see that this has gone on for a couple of days. It's you, you've collaborated with colleagues to explain all this and to reveal all the information you know. What I found really interesting about this is how The Athletic had the space to do this. Now I am. I've really liked the Athletic at some points. I've actually really disliked the Athletic at some points and cancelled my subscription over certain stories. I'm currently a subscriber, not least because, uh, as we I discussed on the other show, I got a rather nice bundle with your new owners, the New York Times. But anyway, I think what, at its best, the Athletic has the ability and space to do proper investigative journalism in the sports area which daily newspapers and sports websites do not always have the chance to because you're particularly when a season's going on you're in just a churn of who won this game who played well who didn't play well maybe what transfers are happening whatever and actually the athletic tends to have the space did you feel like you've been granted the space by your editors and the publication in a way that maybe you wouldn't have been elsewhere um
1: I think any publication would have done this story if they had it, to be honest. I think, you know, I mean, it's a story that would have sat, I think, as comfortably on the front page of The Sun as it yep. would in The Athletic, right? You know, the Manchester United secret plot to bring back Mason Greenwood, like, it it could go anywhere, right? Like, uh, so I don't, I agree with the broader point in general in terms of, yes, certainly, you know, that there isn't, there is an element around the athletic just in terms of the nature of the app and the scope of the, the staff that we have. That means there is, I suppose, more room to do certain things in depth. But I would say on this specific story, I mean, I, I honestly think it's a story that I'm not just saying this because I did, I, th- I think it could sit anywhere in the landscape of British journalism, to be honest, because, you know, you're talking about the most the most popular football club in the country with apologies to everyone else. Well, well
0: whoa, whoa, <laughs>
1: Adam. Um The most, arguably the most talented young forward in, in the country Um with, you know, and you're talking about highly, highly sensitive issues around, you know, treatment of women. Uh, so, so I, so I don't see it that way in terms of, you know, our editors were absolutely fantastic on the story, but I don't think there was like a, a uniqueness to us as a publication in terms of it fitting with us um I think what I would say is you know from 2000 you know from I started with the athletic the athletic when we launched in the UK in 2019 and at that point I suppose we were more we would do investigations but we would also be I suppose more like sport features Mm -hmm. um Whereas I think you know one of the ways that we've evolved over the last few years um, is that we have become more news focused, and we want to not only be part of you know, joining discussions and debates and 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 feature writing, but we also want to be setting the news agenda as well. Um, but but you also have to get to a point as a publication where you're seen as a place where I don't mean this in terms of this story. But in, just in terms of stories in general, where people want to land their stories as well, yeah, right? So like what... you know, because you're competing against big, big legacy yeah. organisations, whether it's Sky or BBC or the papers or uh, Sky News and you know you're, sure. you're, New, New York Times as well. You know, uh, you're talking about big, big legacy publications and. I'm not taking I'm not making out like we're some big under, some big underdogs because obviously you know it's been big... Now
0: I'm yeah now I'm by the New York Times. Yeah yeah yeah. Essentially replacing the New York Times sports desk.
1: Yeah, let's not go into that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> here but um, I will
0: get you into trouble Adam I will. <laughs>
1: um, but I, I, as a result of that, you know, you have to work quite hard to get to a point where yeah. people see it like that and I think that is somewhere where we have developed and evolved pretty strongly over the past couple of years, and look, like, we produce so much content on The Athletic on a daily basis that the reality is there will be stuff that is for you, there'll be stuff that's not for you, there'll be stuff that you strongly agree with, there'll be stuff you strongly disagree with. Um, there'll be stuff that entertains you, there'll be stuff that makes you either annoyed or sad or hopefully enlightened you. Um, and, and I think that's probably the reality of of most media publications, right? Like. If I was to read any newspaper front to back, yeah. I think I would find all of those things you know, but, w- w- within it.
0: Yeah, for sure. I do think there is a space for investigative journalism within sport. And I do think, as I say, because of the cycle of seasons and competitions mm-hmm. and whatever, I think we've slightly lost that in a lot of reporting. And I think that's a shame because I think, you know, that proper investigative journalism sport, you know, to be honest, the kind of story you're talking about, like with this Mason Greenwood story. Um, we, you know, it's important and we've lost it. Sport means so much to so many people and it would be a shame to lose that. And it's nice to have some publications that have the space to do that. Can I ask, we talked about the abuse the women's team suffered as this story was unfolding. If you don't mind me asking, did you end up getting the brunt of this as well?
1: Um there was, so I'm maybe a little bit stupid in that I leave my direct messages open, and I do that because sometimes it can lead to kind of like new connections sure. that, that prove to be very fruitful. Um, and also, like my my general approach is that I like I, I, I like talking to people to people. Yeah, engaging so, people. Sure. Right. So so I don't really mind a, as a whole. Sort of uh, the point of journalism, right? Yeah. Right. And and I also think that if people, you know, disagree with what you've written or want to make sort of certain points, they should be allowed within, you know, within reason to do that. Um, yeah, there was some abuse. Yeah, there was some homophobic abuse, whatever. But it was, I would say 90% of the messages I received were incredibly positive. Okay. I, okay. I would say I've never received, I don't, I'm not making this about me. I'm just saying, because you've asked me the question. I would. I've never received so many positive messages around a story as Interesting. as on this I thought that was like incredibly striking just in terms of the public reaction to it um and yeah there was you know there was some there was some horrible stuff but it, I mean it's, it sounds very blase to say it but like that is fundamentally just part of the job now mm. right you know if you're going to if you're going to be a journalist that wants to develop a following on X, slash Twitter, and you are in any way from any kind of, I suppose, different background, um, whether that is, you know, uh, gay as I am or Jewish as I am, like double blow, um, and or, or any kind of ethnic minority or female, like, unfortunately, the reality at the moment is you're at risk of abuse. Um, on a day on a daily basis and you know I think that's a that's a sad reality but uh, I I suppose I've just sort of been in this now long enough that I almost price it in which is wrong because there's you know there's going to be a lot of people coming into the industry who are shell-shocked by that and it will deter people and dissuade people and also you know older people as well right it's not Mm -hmm. just it's not a young person snowflake thing to not want to be called a
0: And as you were sort of digging out and uncovering this story, Mm. this relationship, were you like, um, look, journalists like causing trouble, right? That's what we do. But as you were unpicking this, you're like, oh my goodness, I'm going to get so much abuse. This is going to be so difficult. You didn't feel like that.
1: No, never. That aspect never crossed my mind. Genuinely. Because it was, I mean, it was a very intense, like, five-day process, you know, from the first story on the Wednesday, I think, the 16th, to the Monday, the 21st, when Manchester United kind of U-turned and announced Greenwood would be coming back. You're talking about, like, what, five and a half days? It wasn't really time to think it, um, in that sense. And And the kind of the second day of stories we did which basically Manchester United had, had, category, had, as part of this planning, they'd categorised their stakeholders, yes. external stakeholders. Um, as this either, is
0: another thing your reporting revealed.
1: Yeah, as, as being either su- likely to be supportive or hostile um, to a plan to bring Greenwood back. And our reporting revealed that uh, kind of like domestic abuse charities were predicted to be hostile um now i suppose there is you know if you step back from how alarming that just sounds written that you know written down you could say that you know if you were part of a consultancy firm and you were asked to draw up a plan you would also draw up i suppose a risk assessment of what that plan entails and i suppose that's you know what united would argue they were doing and they were right right they were right in the sense of Domestic abuse charities, shock horror, are not going to be happy about this. Other people would say, if you're having to write down that domestic abuse charities might be hostile to this, is it the best idea to be doing this? Um, So that was, you know, that we felt was clearly of public interest. And then there were other details like United had even started to plan, like what kind of shots of Greenwood should be promoted on social media. In order to, you know, garner a kind yeah, of more favourable image. I mean, the, it, de- I... the
0: details of the PR plan are fascinating, and it was really fascinating to watch as your stories broke, the reactions to it, uh, and it was fantastic reporting. So, thank you very much, and thank you so much for joining me, Adam. Where can people keep up with all the rest of your work?
1: Um, they can subscribe to The Athletic and stay, unlike <laughs> you. Unlike you. Um... I've got a
0: subscription now. We'll talk about <laughs> it, Mike. Um...
1: And they can, yeah, they can subscribe to The Athletic. Um, they can follow me on Twitter at Adam Crafton and underscore. Um, and apart from that, they can leave me alone.
0: <laughs> Quite right, too. I'm at Charlotte A. Henry on Twitter, although I'm kind of only using it to promote stuff. You can join me on threads. It's the same name. You can join me on Instagram, all the same name on those. Uh, but the best thing you can do is head over to newsletter.theedition.net and subscribe there. Uh, I particularly love you if you take out a paid subscription and I will see you all next week.